Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need money. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analysts Emily Flippin, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always. How you doing? Doing all right. We've Good. got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We're going to head to Singapore to check in with our man, David Quo. And as always, we give an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the Magic Kingdom. On Thursday, the Walt Disney Company held an investor day to unveil more details about its Disney Plus streaming service. CEO Bob Iger said the service will cost $6.99 a month, lower than analysts were expecting, and nearly half the cost of Netflix's standard plan. Disney Plus will immediately include most of the movies from Marvel and Pixar, as well as 30 seasons of The Simpsons. That was on Thursday. And on Friday, Andy, shares of Disney had their best day in a decade and hit an all-time high. Chris, forget Game of Thrones and the battle for Westeros between the Starks and the Lannisters. The real battle is in streaming. I didn't understand one of those references. It's in streaming, streaming between the likes of Disney and Netflix and AT&T and Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. The list goes on and on. This was Disney's latest salvo and their most important one, this big streaming initiative they talked about for the past couple years announced that they were going to go off of Netflix and move all to their own streaming platform. $7 per month, Chris. I mean, Netflix costs 11 to $13, so it's a bigger discount than I think that m- many of us, at least that I was expecting. They're going to invest more than $1 billion per year in content. They're hoping for 60 to 90 million subscribers by 2024. I mean, when you just think about the catalog of programming they have, this makes, I mean, for many of us, Almost a no-brainer. Ron? Yeah, I'm, I'm coming for the High School Musical series, but I'm staying <laughs> for the Lizzie McGuire rerun. Beautiful. Um, no, I really like this announcement, and I like the detail that, that accompanied the announcement, um, the future guidance, which could easily end up being wrong, but I appreciate the effort. Um, the big thing will be to see if they can get enough subscription revenue to offset the licensing revenue that they will lose. They'll lose $150 million, um, from Netflix alone when they pull their content off of that, so that will be certainly something that I'm watching. And I actually think they're operating in a space here that has relatively limited competition because they are focusing so much on uh, children, right? And kids programming. There's not a lot of options for that um, with a lot of the current streaming services. So having a dedicated streaming service specifically for kids, especially at a price point this low, it definitely has a great value proposition. And I'll just add that, you know, it's clear why they're why they're doing the low introductory pricing, right? They're going to bring people in, show them the value of the service. And I have no doubt that a year, two years, three years from now, they're going to be charging two or three times as much for this service than they are right now. Well, they certainly have a lot more runway to raise prices. Netflix has shown the ability to exercise that pricing power that we like to see, Andy, in different businesses. Certainly, Disney, I think Emily's absolutely right, Disney has the ability to do that even more so. Um, I'm curious, though, Andy, you mentioned all the different competition in streaming, and there was one name you didn't mention, and I think there's a reason why. You didn't mention Apple, I, which, I noticed that too, which yeah. made a big <laughs> show of their streaming service. Bob Iger is on the board at Apple. He was asked about his role when it comes to those things, and he said, and I quote, I recuse myself from those discussions. 
There aren't many of them. It's still a very small business to Apple. So, on the one hand, you have Apple saying, this is where we're going. And you got a board member saying, nah, they're not really there. Yeah, just a uh, slight oversight in my part, forgetting Apple there in the list. I mean, the list of competition is extensive. Apple clearly, you know, very interesting to compare the announcements. Bob Iger talking from a studio where they film Mary Poppins, been around for 70 years. No, no real all-stars, no stars joining him so much. Apple, totally different. Just speaks to Disney's... Um, brand equity and the content library they have behind there. Clearly, Apple is, they, they've talked so much about the streaming space. You can't be a media tech company these days. And by the way, those are really merging together, especially at these large mega cap companies, without competing streaming. Disney, just from the content library alone, and not having, Netflix will spend more than $10 billion in content this year, maybe up, up as high as $15 billion, some are saying. Disney doesn't have to spend that because they have the content library to rely on. I think it will be interesting to see if down the road they bundle this with ESPN Plus and maybe even Hulu. Hulu dicier because they only own sixty percent of it. Obviously, Comcast and AT and T being the other owners. Um, my bet is against the bundling, but I'll, I'll be interested. No, to I think watch. they said. That they, I think they said it's likely. I think oh, they said the, the likely think, to bundle all three together. I think that's a huge mistake if so, that's true, yeah. because you'll look at how just paid TV developed and it started to bundle everything. And the thing is, people hated it because. They're paying more and more every single month, and they weren't using all the content. So a household that wants to watch ESPN but doesn't have kids is slowly going to grow frustrated with the fact that, you know, maybe those two things are bundled, Disney Plus and ESPN, and they're paying for all these kid shows, which they'll never use. So I think if they go that direction, they're kind of repeating past mistakes, and they're going to start losing businesses, losing business to businesses that are doing specialized streaming services. But would you be good if you had the choice of a la carte or a bundle? Yes. Okay. And real quick before we wrap up, Andy, Bob Iger set the, the benchmark out there in terms of several years out, how many they're looking to get out. What do you think success looks like for them over the next, say, maybe a shorter timeline, like two or three years? Well, I think if you look at Netflix at 140 million global subscribers, if they can get to 90 million, which would be more than half of what Netflix is today in five years or four years, I think that's a great success. I think they could do it. I kind of just modeling in 100 million members paying 10 bucks a month, you know, more or so. You got $10 billion in revenue per year. Not a bad Not business bad. for Disney. Uber filed its S-1 as it looks to go public later this spring. Uber is aiming for a valuation of $100 billion right out of the gate, Ron. I don't blame them for that, but I'm not interested. How about you? Well, if you like revenue, then you're interested. If profits are your thing, then perhaps not. Um, and don't be misled. Some of the articles you'll see out there do say that Uber is a bit profitable, almost to the tune of a billion dollars. But that, that's misleading because there's about four billion dollars of one-time occurrences on, in the latest year for investment gains. Um, so the company really has an operating loss of about three billion dollars. Um, but listen, hey, 91 million uh, users, up 35 percent. That's about five times the number that Lyft has. It's a very strong business. But as they rightly say right in, in the S1, operating expenses are actually going to ramp. So 
also, profits are not going to be a thing here for quite some time. Yeah, that was the part that leapt out of me, Emily. <laughs> but they basically said, yeah, we don't know that we're ever going to be profitable. And maybe I spend too much time looking at companies that are probably never going to be profitable. Uh, that didn't scare me, honestly, as much as uh, the industry itself kind of scares me. Because when I look at these companies, they're competing so heavily over price. And for both Uber and Lyft, I can only speak for myself and my experience, but I've had a discount on both of those apps for months mm-hmm. now. And I have no doubt that's related to the fact that they, they both of these companies are trying to go public, have gone public, and are just trying to, to show the power of, of the user base. And there's no doubt that there's value in being Uber, right? You don't say, I'm going to you know go hail a, a cab over my app. No, you say, I'm going I'm to grab an Uber. I'm just on an Uber home. Mm-hmm. Um, so, there's value in that name brand, but $100 billion, that, that scares me because in order to have that investment, say, double, they're going to have to grow like gangbusters. And that, in my opinion, will require something like self-driving cars. I appreciate that Uber was very upfront in their S-1 filing about uh, how they're spending money, how they're going to ramp that up, and uh, what a challenge profitability is. But we got a little bit more insight this week into another IPO that's coming up, and that's Pinterest. They set their price range at $15 to $17 a share. That's a business I don't know as well as Uber, but I have to say, as an investor, I'm more interested in it, in part because they appear to be much more conservative in their tone with how they're talking about going public, especially when you consider, Ron, that Pinterest is in the business of digital advertising, which seems like it has a pretty nice runway of growth ahead of it. I think they probably do have. They've grown nicely in the past. The runway is there. Um, I think this is, will actually be a successful IPO. If if I had to, you know, um, make a prediction here, unlike, but I think it'll probably have some staying power. Unlike Lyft, which was hot at, right out of the gate and has come kind of back to earth. I'd be really curious to see how Pinterest sustains itself from a stock price perspective, and I think it will be good. I think it'll be good, too. And a large part of that is because they actually, at the midpoint of their estimated price, are priced below what they've been priced at in, in the private market. So, they're actually you know, pricing themselves at a reasonable valuation. And you'll notice that their revenue growth is greater than Uber's revenue growth. Mm-hmm. So, to me, it's between these two IPOs, Pinterest is the you know hands-down winner. But this is another company that, you know, you might... There's no problem in taking your time before jumping in. I feel like that way with most IPOs. There's really no catalyst for you to say, I have to buy Pinterest or Uber on the first day. Give it some time. Let's see how management does. It'll be interesting. Uber has about $11 billion in revenue right now. It's growing 40% a year. And let's say you know, market ve- the market value of the stock is about $100 billion. So, relatively on the sales basis, it looks a little cheaper than a lot of these other technology companies that are coming out. But Uber is a little bit different because it relies so much on people, much more than other technologies that scale a lot better. But just to dovetail off of what Emily said, we had another example this week of what she was talking about in terms of another hot IPO. This time, it's a software-as-a-service company called PagerDuty. Uh, shares up more than 50% on the opening day. It, it just it seems like it's getting pretty frothy out there. And I just sort of look at that and go, OK, that's fine. Good for you. But uh, let's see how you do over the next couple of quarters. Yeah, great performance the first day with PagerDuty. It was up 60%. Sales in more than 30 times sales now. So, definitely, the valuations are getting very uh, elevated for some of the SaaS companies. Yeah, but PagerDuty does have great growth. It does have yeah. very, very impressive retention rates, customer retention rates. What, you know, whether that can support, uh, what is it, like $2.5 billion, 
$3 billion valuation at this point remains to be seen. Coming up, the friendly skies are about to get a little less friendly. Details next. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Emily Flippin, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. More competition in the airline industry. This week, JetBlue announced plans for service to London starting in the year 2021, and shares of JetBlue, Emily, were up on the news. There was a bit of a teaser leading up to this announcement. I mean, JetBlue has been trying to break into Europe for a while now. There's been lots of talk about that. And honestly, I was a little bit disappointed that it was only London. I mean, I think there's a great opportunity here for JetBlue, but it concerns me that it seems like they've they've really only focused on London at this point in 2021. I mean, we saw how quickly Southwest kind of turned the tables when it comes to adding new locations to their fleet. And this does seem a little slow to me, but I'm excited by it. I've personally never flown on JetBlue, and maybe if they are now the new discount airline, especially with the fall of Wow Airlines, um, <laughs> if it'll get me to London. I'm, I'm surprised happy. that that didn't work. Well. <laughs> um, I have flown JetBlue a bunch of times. Uh, I really love their service. It will be interesting to see, though, if Southwest decides to get involved in this because uh, isn't Southwest that more like Northeast? Has always seemed like they're not interested in transatlantic flights. Yeah, it's going to be hard with the fleet that the Southwest has. I mean, JetBlue maybe making some adjustments here, competing. I mean, that 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 can be very profitable the transatlantic Atlantic routes, but competing against British Airways is you know they're no they're no slouch. They're not going to roll over on this. Um, sticking with airlines, Andy. Uh, last week on the show, uh, Delta Airlines was the stock on your radar. This week. Delta reporting record revenue in the first quarter. Yeah, it was a really nice quarter. The stock was near 50 at the end of March, and now it's close to 58. You saw revenue per available seat mile increase 2.4%, which was above their 2% estimate they had just a couple weeks before that. So they kind of maybe lowballed a little bit. Seat capacity up 5%. Total revenues grew 7.5%. I know you guys talked about some of the benefits that they have from the American Express relationship, and that could see benefits up to $7 billion a year by 2023. So, EPS, earnings per share, up 28%, and expected free cash flow of 3 to $4 billion this year. So, Delta, probably one of the best-performing airlines from an operational capacity out there, uh, continued to do really well, and they showed that in the first quarter. Too early to tell if they're benefiting from the Southwest grounding of, of the MAX plans, but did they make any comments that you know of in terms of going forward or with guidance? No, what impressed me is they had the best first quarter completion performance of 99.06%, which means they only canceled, they canceled less than 1% of their flight. So, from an operational capacity, they are doing everything they can do inside the Delta family. But make no mistake, they were absolutely asked about <laughs> Boeing, as as we talked yeah. about on the show recently, as we expect all airlines, when they're reporting, to be asked about Boeing, whether they've got the Max, uh, the 737 MAX in their fleet or not. Rite Aid announced it will stop selling e-cigarettes. But before you leap to your feet to give the pharmacy chain a standing ovation, Rite Aid also reported a dismal fourth quarter and a reverse stock split, Emily, to the tune of one for 20. Yeah, Rite Aid reminded everybody that it's still a publicly traded company today. Um, I, you know, I feel like it's one of those companies they've fallen now. I think they're the 
fourth largest drug chain, and drug chains in general aren't doing that well in the U.S., and not to mention when you're a small one like Rite Aid. So things are not looking great for them. I think this is a company that is is very quickly going downhill, and I'm not about to give Rite Aid a gold star for canceling sales of e-cigarettes because the FDA has already sent them a letter saying, hey, we caught you selling e-cigarettes to minors. Please stop. But is it safe to assume that we should expect um, e-cigarettes to go in the direction they're going in terms of um, companies not selling them? But we should also expect, as we've talked about recently, um, with the influx of cannabis, with the topicals, more and more of those coming? Yes. Yes to both of those questions. The first being, e-cigarettes has been something that the FDA has been trying to crack down on for more than a year now. And it actually has larger implications, I think, for the online market, because there's really no way for people who are selling these online to you know, verify whether or not the person who's purchasing them is is of age and is giving to them to somebody who is of age. And so they've had a lot of issues in regulating these companies, and it's something that's top of the FDA's mind. But also CBD is top of the FDA's mind. Granted, the FDA has granted permission for people to sell essentially lotions and stuff that has CBD in it. So that's what our drug chains are getting into right now. There's really no legal issue with that as of the moment. I expect as regulations continue to loosen, we'll see more and more players jump in. And next month is the first public hearing, I think, that the FDA is having on this. So I kind of feel like since we're right across the Potomac River, we should just, you know, we should go hang out. Definitely planning on it. Check out the hearing. For the past hundred years, the Swiss government has had mandatory stockpiles of supplies on hand in case of war or disaster. These supplies include things like rice, sugar, and cooking oil. This week, Switzerland's Office for National Economic Supply announced that coffee will no longer be on this list of supplies. And quoting here from the report, the office has concluded that coffee is not essential for life. It does not contribute to safeguarding nutrition. Ron, how can they be so wrong about an issue like this? What about Swiss Miss Instant Cocoa? Oh, you know that's in there. That's in there because that falls under the chocolate. With study after study coming out, seemingly like clockwork, every six months, another study about the health benefits of coffee, Andy. How are they ignoring all of this scientific research? Yeah, when you think they have three months of sugar, four months of rice, four months of cooking oils and fats, three months currently of coffee, and they're moving away from that? Come on. What's going to fill in the space? Well, that's shelf space now. What should we put in there? That's my question. I mean, you're clearing out the space. You must have something on your mind. What's it going to be? They have a lot of wheat. Four Four months of different kinds of wheat, so... Well, just to go back to the business of coffee for a second, um, I think it's no coincidence whatsoever that when the Swiss government is making this announcement, that shares of Starbucks hit an all-time high on Friday, <laughs> mm-hmm. and Dunkin' Brands about two, two and a half percent away from an all-time high. Nice. So. Investors know what's up. Switzerland, please. It's not too late. Come to your senses. Come to your senses. We implore you. All right, Ron Gross, Emily Flippin, Andy Cross. Thanks for being here. We'll see you later in the show. Thanks, Chris. How is the trade war with China playing on the other side of the world? We're going to discuss that and more with our guest, David Kuo. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. 
David Quo is a regular financial commentator for the BBC. He's also the director of Motley Fool Singapore, which is where he joins me from now. David, thanks for being here. Good evening to you. <laughs> evening where you are, where I am, it's morning, <laughs> but that's the miracle of technology. Correct. We are separated by 12 hours. Yes, uh, morning here is evening over there and uh, vice versa. So before we get into individual stock investing, I want to go macro for a second, because one of the dominant storylines for U.S. investors over the last six months has been the trade dispute between the United States and China. How is that story playing out where you are? Well, I mean, if you have a look at the dispute between America and China, I think most people over here recognize that it's not really about trade, Chris. It's really about economic ideology. We have America, which is one of probably uh, the greatest free markets in the world. And of course, we have China, which is one of the biggest command economies in the world. And really what is happening is that we're having this debate in front of the whole world where both sides say that I am right and you are wrong. So America says that it is the free market that works and China says, no, 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 you're, you're totally wrong. It's the command economy that works. And uh, the central government should de decide how resources is going to be allocated in order to better uh, the entire country. So really, this is playing out uh, in front of everyone at the moment, and I have no idea who is going to win. If we have a look at China, yes, the economy is slowing down, but the recent figures seem to indicate that China has turned around. So China is saying that its way of handling a slowdown uh, within its economy by cutting the uh, reserve requirement ratios, by cutting taxes, and directing money where it thinks will produce the amount of uh, the, the greatest amount of productivity is going to be useful for China. So maybe some people will have a look at the Chinese way and say, that's not such a bad model after all. In terms of the volatility that happens, uh, and that can be the result of any number of things, not the least of which is the president of the United States tweeting, uh, I get the sense that as an investor, just as an individual investor, you look forward to moments like that, because you've always struck me as someone who embraces the volatility as a buying opportunity. Well, absolutely right, Chris. And the reason why I say that is because I have absolute faith in corporations. I have absolute faith in companies being able to survive whatever the economic conditions might be. So, uh, you could have high interest rates and companies will be able to survive. You could have economic downturns and companies will be able to survive. And that really is paramount for me. And with regards to those tweets that you talk about, uh, well, uh, personally, I stopped listening to Donald Trump. Trump, ever since he said that his inauguration crowd was, was bigger than Barack Obama's. And I looked at it and I thought, well, that's absolutely not true. And subsequently, I found everything that he said uh, to be challengeable, uh, almost to the point where, how can I believe a president? And I have greatest respect for your leaders over there, Chris, but I just think, how can I possibly believe a man who tells me that his father was born in Germany, when clearly his father was not born in Germany? I mean, 
where, where do you draw the line where you start saying, I believe what you're saying? So consequently, I, I, I don't really sort of pay much attention to uh, the president's tweets, but I do like the idea that it does create volatility in the market. And uh, when share prices are attractive enough, I will go in and buy regardless of what the president might say. So for all of the headlines that China gets, obviously, uh, there are many other countries in the region. As an investor at the moment right now, what countries in Asia excite you the most? Well, I tell you what, Chris, I mean, let me just paint you a very quick backdrop of what has been going on in China. Uh, many of the factories in China have been relocating uh, their production outside of China. It isn't because of the trade war that is going on between the West and the East, but in fact, it is just simply because wages are going up in China. And about a couple of years ago, uh, myself and a couple of uh, uh, fools from Australia went to China. And we went specifically to look at certain industries. And one of those industries was a garment manufacturer, uh, which is um, uh, headquartered here in Singapore, but have operations in China. Now, when we turned up at the factory, Chris, there were no machines in the factory at all. All the workers had been dismissed and the factories uh, and, and the machines had been shipped to Vietnam. And when I asked the, the, the factory manager why, he said simply because it is too expensive to start making garments in China now. So consequently, uh, they put all the, all the sewing machines onto a, onto a boat and the boat was sent to Vietnam and they were up and running within two weeks, Chris. Just imagine that. They had the entire production line up and running in 14 days. And this is really what is happening in China. There is this shift of uh, production lines from China to the rest of Southeast Asia. Some, some of them will go to Vietnam, some will go to Thailand, some will go to the Philippines, some will go to places like Malaysia. So what I'm looking at is the, the entire Southeast Asian region. And I'm saying, which are these uh, countries in Southeast Asia that will benefit from the shifting of the supply train from China, to uh, uh, our particular region, our Southeast Asian region. It won't be here in Singapore, Chris, because Singapore is a very high-wage economy. We don't really sort of make uh, the sneakers and the T-shirts and the jeans that you like to wear. But in fact, you know, we, we, we tend to go in for more high-tech stuff. But as far as the mass production is concerned, it is Southeast Asia. So that is where I'm looking, Chris. I read an interview that you gave recently where you said that every stock in your portfolio pays a dividend. And I was struck by that. And I'm curious about a couple of things. First, how long has that been your investing strategy? Uh, it probably has been uh, part of my DNA since um, the year 2001. When I first joined The Motley Fool, I was a jack of all trades. Uh, I used to have uh, growth stocks, I used to have value stocks, I used to have income stocks. But what really struck me one day, Chris, was that I felt totally elated. I felt really happy whenever I received a dividend check. It was almost as though it was Christmas Day and I was opening a president, uh, a present. And in those days, Chris, dividend checks came in through the post. And once I realized the enjoyment I got from receiving those dividend checks, I started looking for more and more companies that would not only be paying a high dividend, but certainly a rising dividend. And currently, my entire portfolio consists of stocks that pay dividends, and I receive at least one dividend check 
every month. And some months I might receive maybe 5, 10, 15 dividend checks. And it is really that that drives me. So when I go out and buy shares, I'm not actually buying shares. I'm actually buying income for the future. And I'm very careful about looking for companies that will deliver me uh, a dividend, not just today, but certainly in six months' time, or in some cases here in Singapore, they pay dividends every three months. So for me, it's Christmas every day uh, when you're an income investor. So there are investors who will construct their portfolio in such a way where they will have a section that's high growth, a section that is dividend payers. Since all of your stocks pay a dividend, what do you look for next when you're looking to buy shares of a company? Okay. What what I do, Chris, is that I construct my portfolio in such a way that I have um, a very strong base of uh, high income uh, producing companies. Then on top of that, I layer uh, companies that uh, will grow, but at the same time will also pay a dividend. And then I have some fund stocks that I have. I mean, these are what I call my speculative stocks. Uh, they, they, they create a certain amount of excitement, a little bit of volatility in the portfolio, but again, they pay dividends. And it is only a company that pay, dip, pays dividends that will make it into my portfolio. Uh, but I always ensure that my base of uh, high income stocks is bigger than my growth stocks and is bigger than my speculative stocks at the top. And if you have a, a portfolio like that, you can go to sleep at night and rest comfortably because you know that as, as you're sleeping, the companies are working, and then the next morning, you'll be getting another dividend check. Now, before you worked for The Motley Fool, you earned a PhD in chemistry, and after mm -hmm. that, you worked for Hilton Group's horse racing division <laughs> as a bookmaker. So, yes. my question is, which of those two experiences do you find to be more useful in your investing life? Uh, everything is useful because I think that, you know, if you want to be an investor, what you need to do is to learn as much about life as possible. And whether it is uh, studying chemistry, which comes in, well, it came in very handy when I joined The Motley Fool because um, I suddenly became uh, some expert within the company on pharmaceutical stocks. Uh, so it, it was very helpful in that regard. Bookmaking was also very helpful because, oddly enough, around the time uh, when I joined The Motley Fool, uh, internet poker was taking off. And, of course, uh, being being somebody who was involved in the gaming industry, that was very useful, too. And by the way, Chris, I got the Grand National winner on, on Saturday. And uh, I don't think that's got anything to do with my, my, uh, my, my gaming past, but certainly um, I got the Grand National winner. Can you say the same? I absolutely cannot say the same. Well, I did. It was a 9-4 to winner, yes. <laughs> well... I guess that just means that uh, the next time we get together for dinner, you're going to be paying. <laughs> anytime, Chris. Anytime. Oh, by the way, it wasn't nine to four. It was nine to two. So it was about four and a half to one. So that was pretty good. Yes. Uh, are there any betting opportunities I should be looking forward to this year? Or are you already looking ahead to 2020 for the Summer Olympics in Tokyo? Uh, well, um, I, 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 tend, I tend to stick to what I know, and uh, I, I have done some gaming in the past. I, I, I used to, when I was quite young at university, uh, go to the casinos uh, in London. I used to go uh, on a Friday and Saturday night, take in a small amount of money, and I would have a target. And uh, once I reached my target... I would just simply leave. And I think, you know, if you are going to gamble, only, only bet with money that you can afford to lose. And that kind of sort of works with um, investing as well. Uh, you need to be able to say, 
this is money that I don't need for the next five or seven years and put that into some good stocks and in my case some good income paying stocks and at the end of five or seven years, you will look back and say, hey, you know, that was a great investment that I made. That was a good decision. And I think, you know, that is how um, I'm teaching my children uh, how to invest. And that is the way I do it. And I think, you know, it is a great way to go through life. Last thing, because uh, we get the chance to break a little news here. I first got to know you over a decade ago when you were working in the Motley Fool's office in London and you were hosting a weekly podcast called Money Talk. That show ended years ago, but I'm very happy to say that you're now coming back to the world of podcasting. Yeah, you can take the uh, the boy out of podcasting, but you can't take the podcasting out of the boy. And I do remember when I first started podcasting in the in the UK for Motley Fool UK, uh, uh, the boss at uh, the UK at the time was a man called uh, Bruce Jackson, who is now in charge of uh, Motley Fool Australia. And I came across this thing called podcasting, and I asked him, could I do it? And he said, well, how much is it going to cost us? And I said, probably not an awful lot. So we, we uh, recorded our first podcast and we put it up and guess what Chris we had 10 listeners and um, I, I think none of those were Motley Fool people themselves and so when Bruce came around and said how did we do David and I said we got 10 listeners and he said well that's 10 more than we had yesterday and so from the, those 10 listeners we grew the numbers to I, I don't know it must have been about sort of maybe 80,000 or 100,000 people but it was uh, kind of disappointing to leave all of that and come to Asia but you're right we're going to be starting investing in Asia podcast where we will hopefully be going around this particular region and give uh, Motley Fool people and people who are not uh, uh, Motley Fool subscribers a flavor of um, how we approach investing here in Asia and how we tackle you know some of the, uh, the, the, the more difficult countries and the more difficult economies and how we are able to um, hopefully sort of generate a good return for them. Investing in Asia, the new podcast from The Motley Fool is going to be available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, coming later this month. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. David Quo, it is always good to talk to you. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Coming up, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Emily Flippin, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Before we get to the stocks on our radar, we've got earnings season just around the corner. Ron Gross, I just want to start with you. What are you looking forward to this earnings season? It can be a company, it could be an industry, it could just be something that you're curious to see how they do. I'm actually really looking forward to Apple's next announcement, where I'm hoping their guidance reveals something about the health of their business, their transition to more of a service subscription business um, than it has been in the past. Stock has been absolutely on fire this year. We'll see if the business results back that up. Do you think we can get Bob Iger to weigh in on this streaming business? <laughs> Likely or? not. No, because he recuses himself. Emily, what about you? Well, we have a lot of SaaS companies coming up in reporting, and I mentioned this earlier, but you know, I'm really interested to see how long this SaaS kind of um, bubble, bubble, yeah, <laughs> arguably a SaaS bubble is is coming about because I really think that the the 
amazing businesses that we've seen develop just over the past few years are remarkable. And I mean, some of my favorite investments are SaaS companies, but you always have to ask yourself, okay, well, it can't continue like this forever. There are so many players. And if you're in a decision-making position for an organization, I mean, your decision is becoming a lot harder. So, it becomes a question of how do you get these SaaS companies to keep their customers? You have to make that process and, and their information as sticky as possible. Because, you know what? Now the next new thing is coming along. Yeah, and SaaS stands for software as a service for those. And don't send us emails. It's just a mini bubble. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at the cost structure. I mean, we see, we're starting to see a little bit of pricing pressure, but yet the Fed's saying, hey, wait, inflation's not running rampant, but employee costs starting to move up a little bit. We've started to see some companies talk about this. So, if you're a company out there that operates with a lot of people, then clearly you are have to pay those people. And if the the, uh, the rates to pay those people continues to increase, that could nick into profit margins for these companies. Let's get to the stocks on our radar this week. Our man Dan Boyd is behind the glass, so he's going to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at? I got Tractor Supply, the largest operator of rural lifestyle retail stores in the U.S., more than 1,700 stores. They acquired PetSense back in 2016, another nice avenue of growth for them. The company has raised their dividend every year for the past eight. Operating results are really strong. Dividend yield currently stands at 1.3%. For those that uh, like a dividend, not in Incredibly high, but the results, both from a stock appreciation perspective and a yield, both combined to give you a nice total return. And the ticker symbol? TSCO. Dan, question about tractor supply? So, Ron, I can't imagine that you own an actual tractor, <laughs> but do you own a riding lawnmower? Okay, so first of all, Growing up, I did have a riding tractor. We had a little bit of property in the back, and it was the first thing I learned to um, drive. And currently, I do not have anything. Thank you for asking. So you're you're mowing your lawn with a push mower? I, there are people that do those things out there in the world, and I'm happy to support them. I'm going to have nightmares at the idea of Ron Gross driving a tractor. <laughs> totally. Emily Flippin, what are you looking at? So my radar stock is actually a cannabis company. Don't judge me. It's called Kushco. Um, Kushco is a really interesting play in the cannabis market because they're much more focused on on the packaging. And if you're a believer that the cannabis market is going to develop as kind of like a consumer packaging industry, then Kushco is a great play. And the reason why it's on the top of my mind right now is not just because they reported amazing earnings yesterday, management's really delivering on their guidance, but actually because the day before yesterday, they reported that they misaccounted for a couple hours acquisitions, which doubled their losses last year. Yes, a couple of um, details relating to these acquisitions were counted as equity, when they should have been counted as liabilities. And so, that's just a reminder to everybody who may be choosing to invest in cannabis that, hey, you know what? This is kind of par for the course now. And the ticker symbol? KSHB. Dan? Uh, Emily, what do you think the next state to legalize recreational marijuana use will be? Well, it's always kind of been up in the air. Um, my biggest hope was honestly for New Jersey. So I'm still kind of a believer that New Jersey is going to be the next big state to jump on it. But I think federally, it's happening faster than people expect. Andy, what are you looking at? Chris, I'm sticking with the streaming businesses and Netflix reports earnings next Tuesday. It's all about subscriber growth, looking for near 25%. And to see if founder Reed Hastings and Ted Surroundis, the chief content officer, have anything to say about the competition. And the ticker? NFLX. Dan? Andy, I'm kind of worried about Netflix. We just talked about Disney's streaming service. Are we? Are is Disney going to be what ends up as the Netflix killer? No, there will be more than a billion streaming people out there in the next couple of years. So lots of room for growth. 
Dan, you got a stock you want to add to your watch list? Uh, I'm going to go against the grain here, and I'm going to go with Netflix, <laughs> the big surprise, the, the largest company we talked about. All right, Andy, Emily, Ron, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer is Dan Boyd. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next week.